This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here trying to see if I'm watching myself, which I'm not yet, which I usually do. Um, let me see what's going on here. I can't start just yet until I can see myself on my little computer here. So I'm waiting for that to be hooked up and uh, can't do that just yet. Uh, so anyway, I'm in the Warthog uh, Manly Command Center here and uh, inside the Mellon Law Studio. You know, Mellon Law has 50 years of experience the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. Uh, Mellon Law won't back down, and uh, they are a full-service law office. Crime prevention is our security. 24-7, 365, worry less with crime prevention, cpss.net. And, of course, our mugshots are brought to you by Maurice T. McDaniel. I'm still seeing why I can't see chat. Okay, there we go. I got it. There we go. We're all connected now. I'm sorry. I apologize. I apologize. I apologize. And as always, it's my excuse. The devil made me do it. You know, I learned that as a little child. There is such a thing as a devil, right? And it is, um, there is such a thing as evil. So an interesting title today. And I'm going to, you know, titles are kind of a work of art. Uh, there's a question always in the creative minds as we create our narratives. Um, whether we should write the narrative in response to the title or write the narrative and let the narrative suggest the title. And the way I do this show is like a classroom, as you know. And what I do is I spend a lot of time between the time I sign off now and the time I sign on tomorrow, reading and researching and, of course, getting uh, things from you all, the research team. Today, I'm going to go over a very interesting piece of uh, a document that I got from one of the research team members of our community. And so the classroom works the way it really should work. We teach each other and together by high standards and a respect for meritocracy. Uh, We don't take into consideration race. We don't take into consideration any of the fad things that you see. We don't have an agenda, but we're trying to put into the Constitution something that doesn't go there. We're simply trying to learn to think well and to uh, consider a lot of different uh, sources of information. So today I I call the show The Sword of Damocles, uh, which is a very interesting mythological story. Perhaps true, of course, as uh, all myths are, perhaps they are. Uh, Myths are generally defined as um, the, the way in which mortals explain immortality to each other. And these myths become embedded stories that are so classical that they have truths in them forever. And our education system doesn't teach to look back. It's based, as I've said before, on the industrial model where we're always progressing towards completion of the product and then it's shipped out to marketing and marketing distributes to the buyer and in exchange for abstract 
a value, value, as a car salesman say, and that's dollars at Bitcoins or whatever. So um, we have now um, entered into a, a very uncertain world, which um, is alarmingly more precarious than perhaps you know. Uh, I don't know if you know, but one of my sources is, is encrypted. I have combat correspondents in the field that communicate with me uh, over encrypted message systems. And occasionally I've mentioned them to you. Um, they are valuable as can be. Uh, I was there with um, my correspondents during the buildup to the so-called January 6th, uh, being informed all the time of what the problem was in DC was that there was a, a lopsided kind of forgiveness to black violence and a damnation of so-called white violence. And it simply couldn't go on that way. I uh, was getting that uh, story from the very ground zero, right there where they put the BLM uh, in the, uh, in the uh, 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 public area there, uh, the courtyard right, right there near the Capitol. Um, and I, and I, was, I was told long before the so-called January 6th that things were not going well in DC in the atmosphere. Uh, of that community for reasons primarily stemming from the double standard. So, uh, you know, for every, uh, we've heard this old saying, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I think we're seeing that now. Uh, so uh, it's kind of interesting. I got another communication from people in the field, uh, this time about uh, Ukraine and Russia. And I've been holding this story back for some time. I've been researching it for some time, and I'm going to present it today later on in the show. So it's um, probably something that um, will sum up for you some of the tension and the building apprehension about that tension that is in the world, but it's not being very well publicized here. So uh, locally, I just want to alert you to the fact that we have the document here. It was filed on June 27th. Today, of course, is June 30th last day of June. Uh, it's in the court, circuit court of the 8th Judicial Circuit. It is a, um, a stipulated motion for substitution of counsel. And what is happening here, it is the law firms of Donnelly and Gross, PLLC, and Shulman Fugate, PLLC, uh, want to, uh, um, uh, Balsart's going to fire them and going to substitute uh, new lawyers and uh, the new lawyer will be Deanna Shulman, as I understand it. Um, let me just hurry to the bottom, make sure I've got that right. Yeah, Deanna Shulman. So uh, this guy, Donnelly, I knew right away was kind of a, uh, misplaying his hand <clears throat> when he emotionally had the meltdown uh, when he saw me appear in, uh, in the uh, court deposition that was supposed to have taken place about one, uh, the deposition of the, the, the thin-skinned water boy, of course, Ken Cornell. Um, that was the strangest reaction from somebody who should have had, I thought, as a lawyer, uh, ice water in his veins. And he should have been very poker-faced and not created such an alarming reaction to little innocent old me. And when he did, I realized, uh-oh, this guy ain't going to be able to handle it. But, you know, it wasn't my attorney. I didn't hire the dude, um, but I would never have hired the dude. 
uh, but they're especially based on what I saw. And so now, evidently, given the, the pressure that's coming still relentlessly toward the boss arts, uh, because it's a defamation, defamation suit that's coming, uh, and we uh, alerted you to the fact that Kim Bossard and Autumn Doughton had been added to that defamation suit. And um, there's going to be a lot of fur flying, as we say, in the months to come. No telling how long it'll drag out, but it's going to be some serious stuff. And uh, so they're evidently, they're, uh, uh, Bossard is looking for somebody who can uh, handle, the, handle the pressure a little better and perhaps... Um, maybe uh, mitigate some of the inevitable. Uh, I don't know. I think uh, last I heard it, this stuff may go to a grand jury. Grand juries are tricky. Um, the only side they ever hear is the prosecution side. They don't hear the defense's side. And all they want to do is try to find a true bill. And if there's a true bill, then it goes out and cross-examination starts in the, in the, in the judicial process. Um, that That is... Um, it's going to drag it on out more. It's going to be more expensive. Uh, it's, but on the other hand, it's going to put out into the public a lot of testimony. It's going to be most interesting to the community. Um, because the number one question I get um, in, in regards to this particular event in our community lives is why the SWAT team? And we think we know why now. And we think uh, in, in some of the papers that have been filed, uh, the overreaction of the police was a result of the false information given to them uh, by uh, Boss Hart. And that's in the documents anyway. Um, so we say alleged false information given to them. And therefore, they bit as cops and uh, not knowing, you know, which was so they did this. I, I still doesn't explain it for me and a lot of other people, but. That seems to be the explanation we're getting. It seems to be uh, the direction of which it's going. So I wanted to bring you up to date on that, uh, the termination of Donnelly and his group and the substitution by another lawyer. Uh, we'll see how that works out. It's, um, as I say, um, one of the, uh, uh, the most uh, interesting um, uh, events locally uh, that is going on and it has uh, enormous consequences. So um, uh, that along with the elections that are coming up locally are significant school board races, uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, and of course, is this ever ending process of trying to uh, uh, put some common sense into the Gainesville City Commission. And I don't hold out much hope for that because there's seven commissioners. It's, see, it's much more difficult to make any significant changes uh, in the mentality of a group, the larger the group and the more incestuous the group is. Uh, and by incestuous, I mean intellectually and ideologically incestuous. They all come, in this case, since they're Gainesville City Commissioners, from an academic, pretty much, influence. Once upon a time in Gainesville, when it was uh, five commissioners, it was exactly really kind of the opposite. The, uh, the, the commissioners were all business people and they came from the business walks of life. And the whole tone, tenor and substance of decisions and what came before the commission were, I don't recall being ideologically driven at all. It was all about, you know, how can we uh, support business and the business then support them and let them make their own decisions and grow their own 
economy here in our community, which has always been a challenge because the economy of this community is codependent upon the University of Florida, increasingly so. One of the other things that's going on in our state uh, is the uh, withdrawal from the state of Florida of the insurance companies. Uh, there's a big one which is just withdrawn, Southern Fidelity. Um, you know, there's some things that, that made me start thinking about. You know, all this Section 8 housing, all this affordable housing, uh, who's going to insure it? Um, because let me say to you this right now, if you have a rental and it has students in it, uh, the insurance companies won't touch them anymore. They will not insure rentals that have students. Now, come on. This whole community has got these high-rise, Soviet-style, monolithic, egg-crate housing developments, if you will, storage units for students. They're all up and down uni uh, university, and um, they remind me of Soviet um, block uh, developments. They're not unlike Kennedy Homes, really, except they're over on this side of town, and uh, they're putting students in there. Now, students can pay. You understand that uh, the rents go up as the academic qualifications of students go up, because as the University of Florida becomes more, uh, how shall I say this, uh, uh, elitist, uh, they're always talking about, oh, we want to be meritorious. I mean, we want to be, uh, uh, we want equity and inclusion, and, and yet, what they're doing by raising their entrance examination uh, scores is being less inclusive because what you only get the creme de creme who apply to the University of Florida. Have you noticed the university speaks out of both sides of its mouth? It wants to uh, compete with the Harvards and all these people, which is a privately owned institution, very well endowed. We're a state institution. So the state institution wants to take on the private institution. And so what basically it's become the state institution is a private institution. And by that, I mean, it's available only for students who have the scores. Now, most, they're not that many smart students. So how do they get the scores? They get the scores from coming from well, uh, deep-pocketed parents. And these deep-pocketed parents bless their hearts, have done quite well. They've gone out and they've started this business or that, but quite a number of them from South Florida. Um, and they came from Florida, so they want to send their youngin back up here. And that's good. That's all on the positive side. But believe me, the vehicles they bring their children to school in are a big land lot yacht type deals. Uh, uh, they, ain't, they ain't got no a need for any uh, help from anybody. They're making their own money. <clears throat> so these chillin' that they send here can pay these rents. And the reason they can pay the rents is become, because they're coming from, quote, unquote, good families that have invested in their tutelage from the time they were knee high and have sent them to this tutor or that class or whatever and have looked after them. So that's a hidden kind of paradox at the University of Florida. On the one hand, it wants to give lip service to uh, systemic racism and all that business and beat up on the academic freedom and put into the curriculum, uh, as, uh, they, as they say, uh, things that are not in 
belonging in the curriculum, such as political indoctrination. And then the students who come here uh, are, are, are going to take it because they want to, uh, you know, be a good old UF. But meanwhile, what you've done is uh, you have created a, a, a meritocracy in spite of the fact that they say they don't want a meritocracy, that they want to be uh, equal and diverse and all that. So it's really kind of a strain and you see it in the housing. So what's really being phased out here in these rules by the uh, descendants of the UFO arrival in 1947, the Gainesville City Commissioners, is the mom and pop rentals are not going to be able to make it because they're going to have more and more regulation. Now the county commission has even said it's going to go out into the county and start having inspections of rentals in the county. Are you kidding me? I mean, are you, got, you cannot be serious. If you're going to go down a Newberry Road towards Jonesville and look at the Soviet-style Soviet apartments there on the right that are going for $2,500 a month for a, 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 a fewer than 1,000 square foot one-bedroom deal, um, and you're going to have a four-point inspection of that stuff? No, you're going to go out after the mom and pops who have been supplementing quite nicely their lives with rental income all along without any intrusion from the government. So factor in on top of that, the removal of insurance from the state of Florida by insurance companies. Now, who's killing this insurance business? Not those of us living in inland. It's the people on the coasts that are suffering the storm damage that are driving the insurance people out of the state. What we need is targeted insurance. We need insurance that, you know, is a whole different set of insurance uh, for the coastal people. And, but that's not evidently not the way they're thinking because many people have told me that they're beginning to get these Dear John letters from the insurance companies and they don't have anywhere to turn except to the state of Florida and citizens insurance. So the state of Florida is going to be in the insurance business. And I'm not too sure that's good or bad. I haven't really thought about it, but it's a big change. And then on top of that, you put these bureaucrats who know nothing, young kids into the city commission are not business people, the poodle and uh, the, the thug, banana pudding, and how low can you go, Bowtie Poe, the boy named Lauren, uh, the communist Chinko, whatever her name is, from Cuba, who wants to demilitarize the cops. You put all of that, you know, it's like going to the circus. I mean, you know, I keep using the circus as an analogy, but my God, step right up and see the two-headed baby. I mean, it's, 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 it's every, every freak show that you ever saw as a kid uh, is here at the city commission. So I don't know if you can bake, break up that log jam. The other interesting uh, uh, place, of course, is the school board. The school board has got anybody, has got people, anybody but somebody who's got an educational mind on the school board. I mean, this Tina said, I mean, these people are pitiful. I mean, you've got a, a woman on there who, who has uh, been kind of run out of the principalships here in Alachua County for questionable grades uh, at the school. Uh, that whole thing you can research and find out who I'm talking about. And it's on the school board, of all things. 
So that's going to be an interesting place of focus. And then you've got uh, a couple of, uh, for the first time, uh, well, you've got one Republican right now who may not survive uh, when in the general election. It'd be a really tough struggle because uh, they're going to gang up uh, on that person. And you've got a former city mayor who, in my estimation, during the best mayor I ever related to in the city of Gainesville, that's Ed Braddy. Um, we'll see. I mean, uh, and then you've got the single member districts thing, which is uh, Tim Martin helped me out so much on the other day, uh, is you can model on the electoral college. If it were not for the electoral college, you see New York and Chicago and San Francisco would choose the president. And so right now, the way it's set up, uh, Gainesville chooses the city commissioners. So think of single member districts as an electoral college, which would prevent uh, the Gainesville from choosing all the commissioners and being urban university centric. That's basically what you've got right now. All the city co uh, county commissioners are into the ideology of the academics. Basically, that's what motivates them. Wild spaces, um, you know, saving the trees and what, and nothing wrong with that per se, but when it becomes a be all and end, end all of your agenda and you don't let anybody else even challenge it, um, then it becomes rather lopsided, wouldn't you say? And meanwhile, um, the things that people are concerned about uh, go unattended. And I know this, I know that government system inside out, having been a chair to an advisory committee for 10 years to that commission, uh, I know it very well, still holding the record for the largest number of Republican votes ever gathered by a county commission candidate in the history of the county. Um, until somebody corrects me, that's what I understand is the case. I don't go looking at that. I was told that. And, um, you know, don't beat a, a scoundrel like Rodney Long, who uh, not too long after that race resigns from the commission. Um, you know, it, it's nuts. And I think had DeSantis been uh, the governor then, I probably would have been assigned to be that commissioner. Um, but, you know, we had a different governor. Um, and so and, you know, today, in this day and time, I believe if that had happened, uh, if, if Rodney Long had beat, beaten me and then quit, uh, Sanders would have appointed me um, because he would have sensed, you know, what's, what's at stake here. And the, I can assure you that the county would have been radically different had I been on that, had I been on that dais. I mean, just to the forums I went to, I had candidates uh, when I was when as a write-in candidate just to go to the forums here in this last election, um, I had candidates secretly following me out to the parking lot to say, I want to be able to say what you say the way you say it, but I just can't do it. I don't have the nerve to do it. I had all kinds of people say that to me who were candidates and they got elected. I mean, you know, that's what I think of politicians. You know, I mean, there, there you are. So the local scene is a tumultuous local scene. It's um, it's uh, been that way uh, recently for the last ever since we went to the seven commissioners, and uh, uh, then it remains to be seen whether the the uh, rural municipal so-called rural municipalities can be organized. Now I know there's some strong leadership in Micanopy. I know for sure there's strong leadership in Newberry, and uh, and I've got some leadership in High Springs. It's kind of iffy, but I've got no leadership. In Alachua. There is absolutely no leadership in the city of Alachua. 
uh, you know, basically people dress up like they're going to church uh, when they go to the city of Washington. It's sad. It's sad. Uh, You know, you're going to see it. I've already seen it. I've already seen it. And Robert Wilford's watching. He knows what we're talking about. Uh, uh, You know, I wish he were still on that commission, but he had the good sense to to get out while he could and retire and go to uh, St. Augustine. So um, we're going to need leadership. It all comes down to leadership. And it comes down to doing what is the best thing for the community, notwithstanding whatever your personal uh, gain or loss is in it. Um, We don't have it. We just don't have any bold. uh, And as far as the young people go, uh, I hear names, I see people, but, you know, young people are young people. I, I have to say there's not very many good things about getting old, but one of the good things is you really accumulate a lot of experiences. And to the extent that you had a variety of them and you evaluated them and looked at them, you should be, quote unquote, wiser. You know, we tried to address this in that we don't want somebody who is really young to ever be even be able to run for the president. I think the age is 35. Um, the, the, the whole concept here is it takes a little while to have experience before you really know kind of what you're doing. Now, once upon a time too, but it got changed because it became too controversial was the concept that you also had to own property. Um, that really is a big loss to have been removed from a qualification because now, and we're talking about terra firma property, you have to have a piece of, um, of, of, of land that you are responsible for to really become involved in politics because then you realize uh, how many things affect what you can do with that land. And when you realize how many things affect what you can do with that land, then you start paying a little more attention. When you're coming from an egghead background and you're an academic and everything you own, so to speak, is abstract, you own stock, you don't work at the assembly line, you take dividends. Um, you, uh, you have assets, but they're all a liquid, so to speak. They're nothing that uh, depends upon uh, your relationship with uh, nature, for example. Um, then you've got a whole different breed of cat. You've got a guy who, perhaps through no fault of his own or her own, just doesn't get it. You know, it's been it's one thing to be cold that to be told that the Pacific Ocean is cold, and it's another thing to go stick your toe in it. And uh, you understand what I'm saying? One is is a personal experience, and the other is abstract testimony, sort of like what you're getting now from uh, the, the woman who is uh, telling everybody that, uh, you know, Trump grabbed the wheel. I've got a little research on that, by the way. I want to just check and make sure. I think, I think a case can be made, uh, it should be made, that's at, that her testimony is a violation of the Hatch Act of 1939. Uh, she's a staff member uh, uh, the executive branch of civil service employees, except for the president and the vice president, according to the Hatch Act of 1939, are prevented from engaging in uh, political activity. So I think 
somebody should make, of course you can't, what you're seeing with this so-called insurrection committee uh, investigation is not, it's not due process because there's no chance to rebut. There's no chance to cross-examine. Cross-examination is where you find out the real truth. I love to cross-examine. I think that's my gift is to cross-examine because I understand the language. I understand where the weak spots are in the, in the use of it. So I always burrow in at the fundamental level, and that's the sentence and the word. So I want somebody to examine whether or not uh, the Hatch Act of 1939 prevents the Hutchison woman from saying that Trump grabbed the wheel. And by the way, as has been pointed out already on the popular media platforms, if you're in the beast, you can't grab the wheel. Uh, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy tried to tried to do get do something dramatic in the assassination of uh, of John F. Kennedy, and had no success. She tried to crawl out the back and get the exec get the the uh, bodyguards. Uh, is one interpretation of what her intent was. Is um, and she couldn't. She didn't wasn't even successful with that. So um, the other thing. Um, um, the, so I'm very, I'm very interested in whether or not anybody is going to bring up the Hatch Act because it's, um, it's definitely there. Uh, it's not going to be brought up by Pelosi and, and those people that they're, they, they are not going to give you a due process or not going to give you cross-examination time. Uh, they are going to strictly, uh, um, you know, play the narrative the way. See, the whole purpose of this is to stick a, and I didn't get to it yesterday. I'm going to get to it today after the break. The whole purpose of this, students, is to stick a wooden stake in the heart of Trump. And why do I say wooden stake? It's because as my youngins here in production that I'm watching through one of the screens here on my uh, computer know the story of Dracula. And they know that the only way you can finish off Dracula, a vampire, is to put a wooden stake in the heart of Dracula. So this insurrection, January 6th thing, being led by these Democrats, is an attempt to drive a wooden stake. But because of the brilliance of my research team, which is all of you all students, I have been given a document I'm going to share with you when we get back from sponsors that I would never have been aware of if it hadn't have been for one of you all sending this into me, which I've spent some time studying, and I want to spend a little time sharing it with you. I want to put it in today's class curriculum. And uh, the silver bullet was for, of course, um, uh, you know, it was kryptonite for, for uh, Superman. I always remember I was a comic book guy. It was um, kryptonite. You could get kryptonite around uh, Superman, and boy, that was it. So, um, We'll be back in a minute. I'm going to go over a document that was given to me by one of you great uh, students in the class. Be right back on the Ward Scott Files. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, 
R&R construction, and style cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Professor Ward Scott here in the classroom here inside the Warthog Command Center inside the Melvin Law Studio, uh, which is a nice place to be uh, on a day like this, kind of warm outside, and we've got uh, um, a nice little studio here. So uh, I really appreciate, of course, uh, what production does. You, you all aren't aware of them. Usually if things are going well and things go badly, they can fix it pretty quickly. So I uh, want to thank them all the time. I also want to thank Blue Dub Design, uh, Lisa Renshaw, which maintains the Ward Scott Files website. And that's no easy task. So uh, I don't mention her enough. Um, and that's uh, been a longtime friend of mine and has been a long time. Uh, uh, web supporter, and uh, we appreciate everything she does. Um, and of course, as I as I've said, I, I uh, all through my years in the actual formal classroom, I always look forward to learning from the students. And you have to understand, always in the classroom, if you're lucky, there's a student who's a lot smarter than you, the teacher is. And what you do with that student, you just get out of that student's way and let that student take over, and you kind of chase that comment and learn from that student. And occasionally, you know, you, and it's really not difficult to find the smartest student in the class. I've told this story before, back in my high school, you know, we had all the elaborate mechanisms that teachers have to determine grades and tests and all this and that. But we students always knew who the student was who was the smartest one in our school. And I've said his name before, his name is Byron Stuhlman. And um, I knew he was smart right away because he didn't have a tan and he had glasses. And um, any kid that doesn't have a tan must be reading inside the 
library all the time because, you know, the rest of us were outside bouncing a ball or something when we really should have been maybe reading a book. I never knew my good friend uh, to, to bounce a ball. And the other thing he had, which I always was amazed at, you know, I never came to class uh, with anything but the bare minimum, even though now I'm a professor with you all saying, come to class and have your notebooks. But uh, on the first day of school, he carried an attache case. It wasn't just a briefcase. It was a thing you clicked and it opened up and had everything in there for every eventuality. In those days, we had slide rules and protractors and different colored pens and and backup rulers and paper. And, you know, I would always borrow a, a paper from him. He'd always piece of paper and give it, to, give it to me. But that was the brightest guy. And if you go back to our school and look on the, on the wall there of, Hain, of, of fame, you'll see his name uh, as high, having a, one of the highest academic records in the history of the school. So there are people like that. And I, there are people like that listening to this show. And I, I tremendously uh, respect the fact that they they want to be listening to me. Uh, and, you know, they've got better things to do with their time because they can uh, do whatever they want to do with the minds they have. So this document actually came to me. It's something from something called the Brownstone Institute. And it is a, a research done on something called Schedule F. And the reason I'm going to t uh, share this with you today is that Schedule F really does a lot to explain why the Democrats are so concerned about driving a wooden stake into the heart of Mr. Trump. Uh, the author of this is a man named Jeffrey Tucker, who is founder and president of the Brownstone Institute and is the author of many thousands of articles in the scholarly and popular press and 10 books in five languages. Well, 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 that certainly qualifies him as someone I want to listen to. But here is what he says was happening that was the first thing Biden undid. Uh, so, the, the, you know, we think of shutting down the uh, uh, Keystone Pipeline. That's what, but none of us probably knew about this uh, Schedule F. So let me go through that with you and explain what uh, the author has in mind. Uh, the administrative state uh, for the better part of the, uh, uh, dating back to 1883, uh, has been uh, uh, run sort of by the Pendleton Act of 1883. And the Pendleton Act, let me just get my research straight here, made it unlawful to fire or demote for political reasons, government employees. Now that's very important. The Pendleton Act of 1883 made it unlawful to fire for political reasons, uh, government employees. So what this means is that the government employees really run the government. They're the ones who are there, notwithstanding who the president is. I mean, there's, there's, there's no, no firing them. So this becomes really what is known as the deep state. It is the uh, fourth branch of government. And uh, these, uh, this document 
makes clear that all new presidents can hire the heads of agencies and they can hire staff, which are known as political appointees. And they, these 4,000 political appointees rule 432 agencies as well as 2.9 million employees. Uh, this is a permanent state. It's sometimes called the deep state. And this permanent state knows the ropes and the processes of government far better than any temporary political appointee. I've had personal experience with this. When I became the interim city manager of the city of Archer, I had the very good fortune to have in place there when I arrived an executive assistant who knew the government of Archer inside out, had served through several reiterations of city managers. And so when I went there and we used to laugh, I used to call her Mrs. Archer and she used to call me Mr. Archer. She knew everything. And she and I got along famously and she really taught me the ropes in the city of Archer. And I don't know what I would have done had she not been there and had I started out new hiring somebody uh, to help me as an executive assistant run the city of Archer, who would have had to learn from the beginning, uh, that would have been my, made my job a lot tougher. So these, this is the permanent government, is the point we're making here. The permanent government are the staffers, okay? And uh, uh, none of this has been ordered by legislation. It's always, it's always been a result of, of this act. Now, of course, the post office is involved in this. Uh, the, you know how that works. It's, um, 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 but the, 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 the thing here that Trump gradually realized, according to the Brownstone article, the, the thing that Trump gradually came to realize is that he had almost no control over most of the affairs of the government. Uh, not because he had no patience for the legislative process, but because he had no ability to terminate the employment of most of the civilian bureaucracy. The civilian bureaucracy is the deep state. Now, he could not, nor could his political appointees control it. His political appointees cannot control this civilian bureaucracy. And he began to realize that the media echoed the priorities and concerns of the administrative state because the media and the administrative state had long established relationships and that these long established relationships could be used to spread nonstop leaks about information less than genuine, okay? I'll just leave it. I have to watch my words because the algorithms are listening to me. So he tried in May of 2018, Trump tried to gain some control over the deep state. He issued three executive orders. Now, I invite you to go research and evaluate this yourself. Executive Order 13837, Executive Order 13836, and Executive Order 13839. And this would have diminished 
the deep state's access to labor union protection when being pressed on the terms of their employment. And these three orders were therefore after that litigated by the American Federation of Government Employees and 16 other federal labor unions. Now, these things are all, these labor unions are, right now, they're a problem for the local sheriff. The local sheriff is having to deal with the union. Now, uh, Trump had to deal with these unions. Um, it, it, it is it's something that can keep stuff from getting done. Now, all three of these executive orders that he issued, are you ready for this? This is really interesting. I would never have known this. All three of these executive orders uh, were struck down by a decision from the D.C. District Court. And who do you think the judge was? And you're, if you're like me, you would never, ever be able to guess this. Judge Brown Jackson, this lady who is now been, are you ready for this, awarded with first a nomination to the Supreme Court and then a confirmation to the Supreme Court. Get this. She is the judge who struck down the three executive orders that Trump made in May of 2018, wherein he tried to rein in the control of the deep state. Now, this thwarted Trump and uh, it stymied his process of upending the administrative state. Now, just substitute any time you're confused about what the administrative state is, substitute deep state. Deep state are these staffers who have lifelong appointments who you can't touch, who are protected by unions and now protected by courts when unions challenge your executive orders of them. So uh, this became a real uh, uh, judicial tangle. And uh, uh, later uh, her, her opinion was reversed, but it took time to, to uh, uh, get all wrapped up in legal tangle and as time is on the side always of the accused. Uh, uh, you know, they, you know, you see it in the, in the boss art, they're trying to drag it out. Justice denied, justice delayed is justice denied. So Trump really couldn't get anywhere with this attempt initially to reign in the deep state. Uh, he was profoundly aware that he couldn't, for example, fire Anthony Fauci. He, he became increasingly frustrated, according to the Brownstone article, with the Center for Disease Control, and particularly Fauci. And he couldn't fire him. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't fire him. So his next step, and this is a step that really rattled, really rattled the deep state. His next step was to, was according to the Brownstone author, radical and brilliant. Now, this is contrary to what is being put out now by the so-called objective testimony of the Insurrection Committee. The Insurrection Committee is trying to portray him through cherry-picked uh, testimony as he's irrational, unbalanced, and all this. When, when you go look at what he was dealing with and how he was thwarted, uh, you see really the opposite case. 
And so he created a new category of federal employment. He created a new category of federal employment and it's called Schedule F. Now, employees of the federal government classified as Schedule F would have been subject to control by the elected president. And this would have been right in keeping with Trump's motto. Trump's motto was always your fire. But when he got to the government, he couldn't fire the deep state. But if he could get all the employees hired thereafter under Schedule F, he could. He could break up eventually the deep state because eventually the deep state would retire, muster out and all that and be rendered less, less singularly effective. So it was, um, it was a bold move, according to the research by this author published in Brownstone. But um, the Washington Post, of course, commented right away uh, that uh, this was ominous, that Trump was trying to uh, become a, a, a tyrant uh, over the government, that he was becoming a dictator, uh, uh, that um, he was. Uh, uh, and, and so that Washington Post began to print urgently uh, uh, articles that said it was absolutely essential that the voters stop the reelection of Trump. And this became the media onslaught. And the media, you remember, had had all of its relationships established over a long period of time with the administrative state, which the Pendleton Act said you couldn't fire. So he went around that and created Schedule F, and all of a sudden, the media realized they wouldn't have the source of information to use the way they wanted to use it politically. See, the media becomes a, a, a political arm of the government by being in cahoots with uh, the administrative state. So then comes Biden's victory, which is, according to this author, largely due to mail-in ballots. And uh, we know the problem with mail-in ballots. So uh, the, what is the first thing that here we are to where we are now with the January 6th inspiration. What was the first thing on January 21st, 2021, the day after his inauguration that Biden did? Well, you can guess it if you're following the logic here. The first thing he did before Keystone Pipeline, before any of it, and all of this is, I want to thank the student for sending this to me because I, I've never read this before. If I if it's out there, tell me. I just missed it. Uh, the first thing Biden did was reverse the order. And uh, he uh, reversed this change to the federal workforce, and which would have converted the federal workers to at-will employment. Because the problem for the president, any president, is that he has no control over the administrative state. And so the administrative state is the uh, tail wagging the dog. And the administrative state, along with the media, controls the president. So Trump tried to create a way around the administrative state, known as the deep state, and had successfully done it, but lost the election, and Biden eliminates Schedule F.
which would have been the biggest change to how federal workers and agencies were classified. Now, the uh, fully, according to the analysis by this author, fully 88% of the employees would have been newly classified as Schedule F. So if Trump had been reelected, and boy, you can imagine how this put the fear of God in uh, the Democrats and the deep state and the media. If Trump had been uh, reelected, it would have completely been a revolutionary change in Washington politics. But once Biden reversed Schedule F, it was back to politics as usual. Now, this is the first document that I've seen that kind of spells out the meaning of politics as usual. Um, it is, um, um, it, you know, it remains to be seen uh, whether Schedule F would have worked because it was not, it was never really able to be implemented over a serious length of time. So the, 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 the point that this writer is making is if Schedule F had been successful, we would have been closer to the system of government where we had three branches of government rather than four. Uh, those three branches of government are wholly controlled by the people's representatives. So right now, it's not wholly controlled by the people's representatives because nobody has been able to gut the power of the administrative state. Um, so as the writer says, it doesn't matter what your view of Trump is, uh, whether you admire his brilliance or uh, whether you are, you know, think he's a loose cannon, um, uh, whatever, you have to tip your hat to his attempt to make a dent in the domination of Washington politics. And he recognized, and it took him a while to learn it, and, you know, you have to be around a while in these agencies before you learn it. It took him a while to understand the problem and uh, come up with a fundamental solution. Uh, but as soon as he did that, um, he really would have been going back to a uh, time before the Pendle Act of 1883. And that would have been more than the business as usual mentality of Washington could have could have could have accepted. Most of the guys in D.C. are on a gravy train. I have a friend who is at the top of the G, whatever that means, uh, rating, uh, gets a very handsome uh, 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 retirement each month. A good guy, but he was deeply embedded in the administrative state, uh, worked in the Pentagon. Uh, it didn't really matter or what president was there, his work continued, his retirement continued, his salary continued, um, you know, and there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of these type people. And they really are the ones that the press has curried to favor with. And Obama, Obama really learned how to manipulate and use. So um, um, I mentioned the Hatch Act of 1939. Um, uh, that act, according to this analysis by this writer, is basically toothless. Um, and it seems to be confirmed by the fact 
that nobody objects to this staffer for Trump uh, testifying against Trump after having been subpoenaed by a Democrat committee. Um, so uh, Biden's quick reversal of the section, the Schedule F, which Trump learned about very late in his term, very late in his term, um, uh, uh, Biden issued another executive order, 12003, called Protecting the Federal Workforce, and it saved the deep state. Um, will another president come in and have the nerve to, uh, to uh, resurrect uh, Executive Order 13957, which is right now in the archives uh, as a way to restore checks and balances in the U.S. system of government? Um, we don't know. We, we, we don't know. Um, um, see, you know, there it is. But it really explains to me why, and I offer this to you to think about, why this committee, known as the insurrection or whatever, is so dead set on criminalizing Trump. They have to do something to drive the wooden stake into him because if he comes back, and he, and he knows his way around the second time, if he comes back and puts into play, according to our uh, esteemed author here, uh, Jeffrey Tucker, if he comes back uh, and, and, and puts into play Schedule F, it is a game changer. It is a huge, huge game changer. I want to thank my uh, uh, student in the uh, public there and in, the, in the class for providing him that document. I provide it to the rest of you students for you to think about and to evaluate and to maybe research further. And of course, all my presentations are open for criticism. Uh, you may come back and say, well, you got this slightly wrong or this or that. You just got to come back with some good sound thinking. Don't come back with just a off the wall opinion, but I'll listen to all of it anyway. Um, thank you for tuning in today to the Word Scott Files. And thanks production for helping us. Thanks to you, Lisa, for Bradshaw for maintaining our web design. And uh, we surely appreciate uh, the, the opportunity to talk with you. Have a great day. Warhol Command Center out.